Louis Bertolini served as a youth pastor and a substitute teacher. And in his book, Back to the Heart of Youth, he actually talked about a time when he was teaching a grade 10 class. And he had finished with the, the curriculum that had been given to him. So he decided to ask a question to those young people. And he said, what's the number one problem facing young people today? And he was expecting to hear words like teenage suicide or or maybe conflict with parents, uh, violence or addictions of some type. And and this is what the class unanimously agreed upon, that this was the number one problem facing young people. And it was boredom. They said, we're bored. We have nothing to do and no reason to do it. Now, obviously, this wasn't a farming community because teens are not bored on a farm. But a week later, Bertolini said he was in another school. And this team, he asked, this time he asked his grade 10 class, if I could bring a youth expert in here to speak to you today, what is one question that you would ask him? And a young guy in the front row named John, he put his hand up and he said, tell me why I should get up in the morning. So Bertolini dubbed those students as a generation without purpose. So what is the primary purpose for your life? What gives you a significant reason for getting out of the bed every morning? It's not just young people who seem to have no ultimate purpose because most adults don't either. I've mentioned before how I traveled with my wife, Pat, to the National FAF Sewing Machine Convention, and it was in Las Vegas, Nevada. And it was a great week for me. I've never had such a relaxing week. I slept in, my phone didn't work because I was on the other side of the border, so I had no messages. And I uh, sat around the pool, I read, and then I played golf with my wife's boss's husband. And we were the house husbands of Halifax that week. And then But everywhere you went on that 50-acre property, you had to go through the casino. And so I'd be going through there a few times a day, and I would see the same people just mindlessly putting quarters into the machines and pulling down on the lever. So finally one day, I saw this woman there again, and she was in a wheelchair, and she had oxygen uh, through her nose, and she was there working the machines, and then she won a few quarters one time. So I stopped and talked to her. I I don't usually talk to strangers. If you know me, I'm talking to strangers all the time. And, And I struck up a conversation with her, and I discovered that she lived about an hour and a half away from the casino, and she would come in three days a week to come and play these machines. She said, this is what she looked forward to. This is what gives me purpose in my life. And And she said that she loses about $200 a week usually over the course of that time. But I thought, how sad. Here's a woman who is, I figured she was probably about 80, 85 years of age. So she's getting to the end of her life. And her primary reason to live is to play a slot machine. But I couldn't be too critical of her because I start thinking about the fact that most of us aren't that different. There's something that we're focusing on. We're indulging in recreation or maybe it's accumulating things or maybe it's increasing our status. 
but it's all temporary things. So we're just putting 25 cents in at a time. It's interesting that Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, has now sold more than 50 million copies. So that tells us that there are a lot of people that are actually searching, they're searching, they're trying to find purpose and meaning in their lives. But many years ago, Simon Peter wrote about the purpose-driven life and he pointed out the fact that you can't find this by looking within yourself. You must look to God, your creator, and the reasons for which he created you. And then you will understand that life makes sense through him. We just need this reminder because even Christian people can forget that they have a reason for living and they can become discouraged. Victor Frankl, he was a survivor of horrendous torture in a Nazi concentration camp. And and here's what he said one time. He said, if a man has a wife for living, he can endure anyhow. Because we wonder, why do believers fall into sinful habits again? Why do they get entangled in addictive behaviors? It's because they lose their sense of purpose and give in to the appeals of this world. Why do some Christians drift away from involvement in the local church? There might have been somebody who hurt them. They might be disillusioned with the leaders, but they would have persevered if they had just been convinced that their contribution really mattered. So we're going to look at 2 Peter chapter 2, starting with the fourth verse, and we're going to see how he reminds us about our ultimate purpose for living. And we are actually living stones, and we have a significant ministry in God's church. So verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. So here's Peter comparing the church to a building. Now we might be more familiar with some of the other analogies that he used, that the church is like a family, and each one of us you know, are members of that family, or the church is like a body, and each one of us is a different part of the body. Or maybe that the church is like a bride who's a addressed for her husband. But Peter compares the church to a permanent building that is constructed of many stones. And he points out that Jesus is the most important stone, that he is the living stone. And that is because he was raised from the dead. You've probably heard people say in their announcements that diamonds are forever. I think there might even have been a James Bond movie similar to that statement. But they're not forever. Diamonds are actually dead stones. But Jesus is the only permanent living stone. And he is also a precious stone. And he's more precious than any silver or gold because he is God's chosen one. Peter actually quotes from the book of Isaiah in this next verse, in verse 6. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So to those who put their trust in Christ, he becomes a saving stone or a stepping stone. And it gets us from being separated 
from God because of our sin. But that stone that Jesus becomes brings us back over to God. We could never bridge that gap on our own between our sin and heaven. But the cross of Jesus Christ is that stepping stone to eternal life. And I like the one phrase in that verse, the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So that means we'll never be embarrassed, we'll never be disappointed by Jesus, he'll never let us down. When my grandson Seth was three years old, I took him to a park, to an area where they had slides and all kinds of other equipment. And I saw monkey bars and I'm thinking, let's build a strong kid. And I, I tried to encourage him to get on the monkey bars, but he was hesitating. But then I said, well, Grampy will catch you, don't worry. So he gets up there and he's doing quite well, but then he slipped and down he goes. And as a little slow reaching out to him, hands coming together, he's already on the ground. And he's not hurt very bad, but he's mad and he's crying. And I seem to have a pattern going there because when our daughter Brittany was three years old, I used to lie on my back, squeeze her between my feet, and then I would swing her up over my body and I would catch her like this. And then, of course, one time we do it and hands together and Brittany's behind me on the floor, mad at me. But Seth, when you put your trust in Jesus... He's always going to catch you. He's able to keep you from falling. And when you stand before him on judgment day, he's not going to shame you. He's not going to ridicule you because the Bible assures us in Romans chapter eight, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that is an incredible promise. Jesus is that saving stone. But he's a stumbling stone to those who don't believe. And now we pick up in verse 7. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So that same stone that actually helps other people step up into eternal life can actually cause other people to slip and fall down. For the person who doesn't believe in Christ will stumble over the standards that he has set. The rich young ruler, remember the story about him. He came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, what do I need to do in order to be saved? And Jesus talked about keeping the laws. I've done all those, kept every one of them. And then Jesus said, you need to sell everything you have and give it to those who are in need. And that young guy, he just couldn't do it. He was floored because everything was tied up into his belongings into his money so he walked away sad because he was living for his possessions and he couldn't make that commitment see there are people today who go to church and they're eager to get the benefits that will come from that but when the tougher demands of Jesus come they stumble and they fall you'll never get me in that baptistry or I'll never give away 10% of my money there's no way that I'm going to become part of a discipleship group I come to church to be inspired I come to church to feel good I don't want to hear anything about repentance 
So they stumble over the very same message because they disobey the message. And I like the way Peter actually says this, and this is the message paraphrase. They trip and fall because they refuse to obey just as predicted. So even though people stumble over him and reject him, Jesus is the cornerstone. And he came to the very people he created and those very same people rejected him and put him on a cross. But God brought him back from the dead and he became the foundation stone for the church. He became that cornerstone. And Acts 2.47 says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So when you become a Christian, God adds you to the church. And we are living stones in that building. We need one another because a Christian without a church is like a trombone player without an orchestra to play in or like a center ice hockey player without a team around him. Or it would be also like a soldier without an army. The Christian life is a life that is to be lived together. And you need the people around you, and they need you. It takes a lot of bricks to build a house, and it takes a lot of people to make a church. But each brick is significant and has a role to play. If you have a brick house and you take one brick out of the outside wall, first of all, it doesn't look very good. And then the rain is going to get in there and it's going to freeze and it's going to create all kinds of problems. It impacts the entire structure. It hurts the appearance. It endangers the stability of the wall. When you become a part of the church, you are part of an institution with eternal significance. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now that's not true of any other institution. The bank it may not be, it won't be here forever. The school may not last until the end of time. The shopping centers, they, they can be torn down. Hospitals can be closed. But the church of Jesus Christ has endured attacks and mismanagement for 2,000 years and is stronger today than ever before. So you are part of something greater than yourself. Your contributions help strengthen others. Your failures will actually threaten the well-being of others and negatively impact the influence of the entire church. If just any ordinary person in the world does something negative. It's not talked about very much, but if a Christian does something negative, it's front page news. We want it right up there. This pastor did this. And, but if negative things are done by that other person with no church affiliation, not so significant. So we realize that being part of the church magnifies the cost of our mistakes but it also increases the value of our contributions. So if you are a member of this church, you have a ministry to perform, and that is going to strengthen the whole building. But everybody isn't going to be a brick that's at the front. You see Carlos Medrano and, and the various teams that are up front here on Sunday mornings. Not everyone is going to have a significant role in like that, but 
Each role that we have is significant, even though it's hidden in the background. People will be working on the property. There are people right now downstairs with the kids in the nursery. And then there are people teaching in the Glow Kids program. And those people don't get any glory whatsoever. People prepared communion. They prepared the coffee that you may have had to drink on the way in. There are people that give generously. and Nobody knows that other than the, the treasury. And they give to the programs of the church. Maybe you're now giving to making room for more, our capital campaign. But every Christian is called to perform some function in the church. Now we skipped over a phrase in verse five and Peter used this analogy that we are holy priests and we have a privileged opportunity to glorify God. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Back in the Old Testament, Israel had a priesthood. And this was a special class of religious leaders and they had been ordained or, or set aside and went through a cleansing ceremony that made them holy and they were given direct access to God. And the common people were referred to as unholy and they weren't given that access. They were unworthy to come into God's presence. So the priests would serve as the mediators between the people and God. And then those priests, they took approaching God in worship very seriously. Worshippers were warned that if they attempted to go into the Holy of Holies, they would die. And the Old Testament priests, they didn't just wander casually into the presence of God off the street. They knew that they would actually die if they came to worship inappropriately. But in the New Testament, Jesus is the high priest whose blood has cleansed us from our sin. And as a result of that, every Christian is now a priest. Everyone has access to God. And we are privileged to be able to come to him in that way. At 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. So we don't have to confess our sins to a clergyman. We don't have to confess to a member of Jesus' family or pray to a member of Jesus' family. We can go directly to God through the name of Jesus Christ. If you have the cell phone of the mayor of the city, you'd consider that an honor and you'd be careful not to abuse that privilege. As a Christian, you have direct access to the creator of the universe. And we need to be careful not to be flippant about worship. But we need to be concerned about pleasing God. So here are some practical guidelines of how we can make our worship more pleasing to God. First of all, prepare your hearts in advance for worship. If you're going to visit someone important, you think ahead of how you're going to conduct yourself. So when you're preparing to come to church, like be listening to some Christian music or maybe the previous week's message, or maybe you can study the scripture in advance, but be ready. Have your hearts and minds prepared for worship. And come on time, because if you're late, you feel rushed and you miss out on some good worship music at the start of the service, come five, ten minutes early, settle in and you'll enjoy it so much more. 
and be friendly. You don't have to worry about that so much with our church, but talk to the people around you because worship is a family activity. And then when the service starts, be involved, participate enthusiastically, sing, pray, clap, take notes. Your participation and your body language encourage others and expresses your worship. And give back to God. We don't pass an offering plate to be able to do that on Sunday mornings. And most of you do that through some electronic means. We still have an offering box there that people can use. But this giving back to God isn't because it's necessary to pay the bills. It's an expression of our love for God in a tangible way. So it's an integral part of our worship, whether it's on Sunday or on some other day of the week. Because we say, Lord, you gave yourself for me. Now I'm giving this portion of my life back to you. And talk about the worship as you travel home. Now try not to be critical, but, but talk about what was meaningful to you. And include your children in that conversation as well. Involve your family in a positive review. And then finally, leave determined to live for Christ. Your real worship isn't what we do here on Sunday mornings. Your real worship is what you're going to do throughout this week. Romans 12 says, Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So as a holy priest, you have the privilege of being able to glorify God in worship. So do it wholeheartedly for God. And then beginning with chapter 2, verse 9, we see an expanded reason for living. We are God's people with a crucial responsibility to witness to the truth. And this is taken from verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So God has chosen you and he has given you honored status so that you can communicate his word to the people around you in the world. One Christian summed up it all this way. He said, my purpose in life is to go to heaven and to take as many people as possible with me. And the passage that we read says that in two ways. First of all, we are to declare God's truth. So a Christian is supposed to speak tactfully and boldly about Christ. And then we, in that verse, it says, we declare the praises of him who has been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. So if you still live as though you're in darkness, then your words mean little. You have to earn the right to be heard by living a holy life. We do pizza with the pastor here on the first Sunday of each month. And at one of those sessions, we had a middle-aged couple that were attending. And I usually ask people, well, first of all, their names, introduce yourselves. Uh, where are you from? What kind of church did you grow up in? How did you end up here at HCC? And the husband in this uh, couple, he said, well, I'm actually doing ET work or ET, IT work for one of the members of your church. I think he's even one of the leaders of your church. And my wife and I just decided, you know, it's time that we got our lives straightened out and started to find a church. And I just thought, 
of the interactions that I had with him. I, I thought of the integrity that he showed in business and just the way he lived his life. And so if he attends that church, then that church must be okay. And that's how they ended up here. So the integrity that our friend showed in business gave credence to the gospel. And he had no idea that people were watching, but that made all the difference in that couple's life. 1 Peter 2 verse 10 says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So if others see mercy, kindness, and authenticity in you, then you earn the right to be heard. And the verbal testimony and the godly life, they go together. It's like two handles on a set of pliers. If you just have one handle, it's not going to work. Both are essential. So Peter uses a series of phrases that emphasize the need for this distinctive lifestyle or a, a different lifestyle. And in verse 11, he said, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and aliens. So he's basically saying, don't get too familiar with this world. Don't get too comfortable here. Don't fall in love with it. The message actually paraphrases that verse this way. This world is not your home, so don't make yourself cozy in it. And I like the way they phrase that, because this is just temporary. Our real home will be in eternity one day. Max Lucado actually says that our attitude toward the world ought to be similar to a passenger on a plane. When the flight ends, everybody's standing up. People don't sit there in the seat and they say, oh, can I just hang out here a little while longer and eat some more of these little pretzels and, and drink some of this juice? I'd like to just stay in this cramped up seat. No, as soon as the plane lands, they're standing and they wait 15 or 20 minutes until they're finally allowed off that plane. The plane ride is a temporary, necessary, sometimes enjoyable, sometimes uncomfortable experience, but it's taking us to a destination. And Christians ought to have that same kind of attitude toward the journey in this world. We're going to enjoy it and make the most of it, but this isn't where we're going to stay. We're intending to get off. We're not going to get too cozy here. So that's why he says, as we read on, that we are to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So Peter doesn't deny that temptations will come to us. He admits that those old sinful things may flare up within us. They seem to want to war with us. And there's this civil war going on inside. One time I encountered this enthusiastic, charismatic Christian who shared how his life had changed since he had become a Christian. And he said he was instantly transformed. He said, before I became a Christian, I swore constantly. But when I became a Christian, God took that away and I have never been tempted to swear again. And then he said, before I came to Christ, I smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. And the day I was baptized, I threw those cigarettes away and I haven't been tempted by nicotine ever since. 
And then he said, before I came to Christ, I had a terribly lustful eye and it embarrassed my wife the way I was always looking at other women when we were out in public. But since the Holy Spirit filled me, I have no lustful thoughts, no desire to look at anyone except my wife. And I wanted to ask him, how are you doing with the lying thing? Because... <laughs> That hasn't been my experience, and it's not the experience of most Christians I know. We still have to war against that temper, or that greed, or maybe that lust, or, or maybe that envy. And it's a daily war against the soul. But we are to abstain, resist, and deny those temporary desires because they can wound us, and they can wound our testimony. In verse 12, the apostle says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So the world may ridicule our ministry. They may disagree with our message here. They may find fault with our leaders. But one irresistible witness for the gospel of Christ is a godly, compassionate life that they see of a member in the church. See, over the years, I've number, actually nominated a number of people for the Mainland North Volunteer Awards. And the last time I did that, it was a young man named Mitch. And he was teaching in the Glow Kids program. So that was one month he would teach all four Sundays. Then he would have a month off. He also was serving in the youth ministry. And then if there was any construction project going on around the church, Mitch was always here as well. So I nominated him and I wrote a glowing letter about him and the ways in which he served. And, and then I went to the award ceremony with him. And I thought I was going to get up to stand and introduce him, but they actually read my letter. This is what they did and got to hear about everything that he did. And as a result of that, he was given that award and the people in the community understood some of the ways in which he was able to actually serve here in the church, some of the ways in which he was also able to make a difference for Christ in our community. So God has called you to an eternal purpose in his church. So don't be bored. Don't aimlessly spend your life 25 cents at a time on that which brings you no return. Your life matters to God. Each moment that you live has significance for him. Charles Swindle told a, a story about Albert Einstein and he became a little absent-minded later in his life. And Einstein was on a train and he was traveling somewhere for a speaking engagement. And the, the porter or maybe it was one of the engineers came along and was looking for Einstein's ticket. And Einstein couldn't find his ticket. But the guy said, Mr. Einstein, we recognize you. We, tr we trust you. That's okay. Don't worry about the ticket. But when that conductor came back, uh, maybe 15, 20 minutes later, there was Einstein. He was g everywhere looking for that ticket. And the conductor said again, Mr. Einstein, I told you, it it's okay. Don't worry about it. We know who you are. 
But Einstein responded by saying, it's not a matter of trust, it's a matter of direction. I can't remember where I'm supposed to get off the train. I don't know where I'm going. And my question that I want to give you this morning is, do you know where you're going? Do you know your destination? Or are you searching for a, a ticket that will give some direction to your life? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And our lives will have significance and purpose only in him. Make certain that you connect with him in that way.